we can turn back to the passage you read there, Ephesians chapter 2. And I'd like us tonight to think about verses 8 to 10. So we can just reread these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sometimes, as we know, um, with regard to writing a letter or some message that we know there's a certain amount of space uh, that we have on a page and it may be the case that we would have to um, squash a lot of what we want to say into it. And there may be something like that behind um, some of the books of the Bible. Because in those days, they would have had to use scrolls. And therefore, they would have to ensure that their uh, intentions were all found within the space that was available. And perhaps that's one reason why Paul, uh, in this letter, says a great deal within a very small amount of space. Whether that was the case or not, we don't know, but um, it is quite interesting. Well, it's, int it's unusual. For example, at the end of this letter, he doesn't mention any names. Whereas normally, at the end of a letter, he sends greetings to people. But who knows? Maybe in the scroll, under God's guidance, of course, there wasn't that much space left. And I suspect as we uh, read everything he says, we feel that we would like him perhaps to slow down and take some time to, ex uh, to further expand some of the ideas that he mentioned. I mean, we... Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 7. And in these verses, there are lots of statements that we might wish um, further comments had been made about them. I mean, he tells us that our salvation was um, given to sinners who were spiritually dead. 
who were very active in their state of spiritual death, and at the same time, they were being influenced by uh, the course of this world, the ideas that are prevalent in a society at any given time, and also that the devil, the prince of the power of the air, was at work, not just in a kind of uh, occasional manner, but constantly. And he says all that in three verses. And people who try to explain what he said take pages and pages to explain what he had in mind. And then when he goes on to talk about salvation itself, he points out that it's all due to God's mercy and his great love and that he made us alive together with Christ and united them to Jesus. And that some people who have spent their lives studying Paul say that that is the key concept that he basically explains throughout his writings that we are united to Christ. And that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Just look round and you see people at this moment who are united to Christ. And not just united to him as it's just as if they were uh, loosely connected but uh, united to him in such a manner so that whatever Christ is they are it's not so much that whatever they are he is which is true of some other illustrations, such as when he's, Jesus is likened to a shepherd and we are sheep. There's a certain sense in which that illustration uh, brings him down to where we are. But the ones that Paul mentions there in Ephesians 2, which we read a minute ago, tell us, that we have been taken up to where he is because we are, um, as he says there in verse 6, we are raised up with him. That is that we are, um, well, before that, we're made alive together with Christ. That's what happens at regeneration. And then we are raised up with him. So, where is he? Well, we know where he is. He's in heaven. And where is he in heaven? Well, he's seated. And on what is he seated? 
I mean, what kind of seats are there in heaven? There's only one seat he's on in heaven. And that's the throne. And Paul there, and if, if this doesn't stagger us, then it should. Because he says that we have been made spiritually alive, and as a consequence of being spiritually alive, we are raised up with him and seated with him. So there, there's a certain sense, as we look at that, we could deduce from that description that we can't get any higher. Because what is there that's higher? And it may be the case that we, um, since it's very hard to grasp, if at all possible to grasp, we may be inclined to rush over it. But just thinking about it. I mean, one of the searches that goes on today is the search for significance. And people want to be recognized. Well, what greater significance is, is there than this? That to be recognized in the sense that whatever Jesus is, his people are. And Paul, he manages to squeeze all that into a couple of sentences. Something extraordinary. And then points out that in the coming ages, and he doesn't tell us how many ages there are, except to say that they're plural. But in the coming ages, he might show God the Father is going to show to an innumerable number of people the immeasurable riches of his grace. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? To try and imagine what this is going to be like. Yeah, the, the best person in everyday life uh, to describe an inheritance is not the heir. The best person in life to describe the inheritance is the one who's giving it. And here in the world to come, wherever that involves, and it's going to last forever and ever, throughout it all, God the Father is continually going to unfold to let us know, to inform us of how deep his kindness is, 
as he's going to provide us with this constant uh, stream of endless riches. And I realize that in saying all that, I'm just using words. Because the reality is, until we get there, we don't know what it's going to be. But having said that, when we get there on day one, we won't know what's going to be there on day 101. Because it's going to constantly unfold it. And nor will we know what's going to be there in age 101. It's just going to keep on coming. And that's extraordinary. And one response to all that should be, where does it all come from? Why is it all happening? And what effect should this wonderful future have on us now? And I would suggest that in verses 8 to 10, Paul tells us where it all comes from and what effect it should have on us now. It comes from the fact that God is a saviour. Not just a saviour from something, but a saviour to something. It's not as if we were rescued from danger and somehow just left in no man's land but we're rescued from danger and taken to a place of prosperity. So we're saved. And the demands or the consequence on us, because we have this wonderful salvation from God, the consequence is described in verse 10 that we will be sanctified. And I suspect that Paul is saying in verse 10 that the only proof that we have that one day we're going to stand and see God the Father showing us all these endless blessings the only proof that we have that that's going to happen to us is that currently we're being sanctified. And that sanctification <clears throat> is described in verse 10. So I'd just like us to think about salvation and sanctification being rescued and then serving God. So first of all, salvation 
or our rescue. Now, it is um, possible <clears throat> to say a truth that's not in a verse. It is possible to say that. And as we come to verse 8, what is the truth that's mentioned in verse 8? We know what grace is, and we know what faith is, and we know what salvation is. But which one of them is the gift of God? Normally, <clears throat> or usually, when somebody wants a proof text to say that faith is God's gift, they jump to this verse. Now, it is true that faith is God's gift. But the question is, is that what Paul is saying here? And it may surprise us to know that is not what he's saying here. And the reason for that is the kind of terms that he uses in the sentence. The word, the nouns, grace, and the noun, faith, are feminine in Greek. But the word, this, is neuter. If it was going to be referring to faith or to grace, it would be a feminine pronoun. But it's not a feminine pronoun. It's a neuter one. So that tells us it's not referring to either grace or faith, but it's referring to everything that's in the sentence. And what is in the sentence? What's in the sentence is salvation. And what Paul is telling us here in this amazing verse is that the entirety of salvation Salvation from the spiritual darkness that we were in to the endless glory that's going to come. That all of it is God's gift. Of course, the various features of his grace that he shows and also the faith that he bestows, all that is his gift as well. But if we limit the statement to saying that faith is the gift, we're actually losing the bigness of what Paul actually says. That this salvation, all of it, not just the part that we have received already when we were pardoned, and not even the parts that we get as we make our way through life. But what we are going to be enjoying 
in the endless world. It's all God's gift. And it's good to know that, isn't it? And that gives us a real insight into the character of God. What kind of God is he? Well, he's a God who gives. And of course, that's what Paul says many times. I mean, for example, he says, if God has given us Jesus, how will he not freely with him give us all things? And sometimes we, I think, we look at that little word, two words, all things, and say that means everything in this life. But it doesn't. It means all things forever and ever. And therefore, Paul here is saying something incredible about salvation. It reveals to us that all of it comes to us free for nothing. It's his gift. Grace, that's just divine favor. Divine favor to the unworthy. But God's attitude, his grace, is determined to give to all of his people the fullness of salvation. And therefore we can say, how rich are Christians? Well, they're as rich as God will make them. And that's wonderful to know. We've been pardoned all our sins. And of course it has come as a consequence that we were saved through faith. And it's probably helpful just to think about what faith is. When we call somebody to faith, what are we calling them to? If somebody says he has got faith, well, what does that person indicate he has? And no doubt there's different ways of um, describing faith, but here's three details. First, we could say that faith is a persuasion. It's a persuasion that Jesus is the Savior. We hear the gospel, some people hear the gospel once, and immediately they accept it. In their situation, the Holy Spirit, we might say, took 10 seconds to illuminate them and to persuade them. And that's happened. But normally it takes a process of time and the 
An individual may, when they first hear the gospel, think it's irrelevant. As Paul says, the Greeks thought it was foolishness. And in order for people like that to become believers, they had to be persuaded. And the persuasion that they, are, that they receive is not so much that other humans persuade them, but that God himself works within their souls and persuades them, convinces them in their minds that Jesus is the Savior. And they may not be able themselves to trace how this changed outlook has happened. But it has happened. And nothing can unconvince them. They know. They're 100% convinced that this Jesus, that initially they may have ignored or despised or whatever, that now they've believed that he's a savior and nothing will shift that. So that's one feature of faith, is that persuasion. But it's also something that's marked by penitence. Because the person that's persuaded that Jesus is a savior obviously realizes that he needs to be saved from something. And what he needs to be saved from is his sins. And as he discovers who Jesus is, he also discovers who he is or who she is. And as they discover that Jesus is the Savior, they also discover that they need saving. And they need saving from their sins. And as they realize more and more who they are, and this process may not be long, or it may be quite long, or it may be short, we can't say what it's going to be for any single individual, but this process, they discover that they are sinners. And the only people, you know, and it's, it sounds, it's obvious, but the only people that believe in Jesus are sinners. But the people who believe in Jesus know they are sinners. And they come to him gladly, gratefully, accepting eagerly his offer of mercy. And in addition to this persuasion and this penitence, there's trust. They lean upon Christ. They depend on him. On him they place everything, not just for this life, but for the life to come. And this trust brings them into close contact. They could be persuaded without the contact, 
And there's even a sense in which they could be penitent without the contact. But this dependence, well, there has to be contact. And they trust in Jesus. And when that happens, they are saved. As we know, salvation can be described as from the power of sin, from the presence, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Save salvation from the penalty of sin happens at conversion, from the power of sin that happens throughout our Christian journey, and from the presence of sin that's going to happen when we go to heaven. And the salvation that Paul is talking about here, pardon, forgiven. Faith is like an empty hand that takes a big gift, takes an enormous gift. And Calvin says somewhere that faith is a hand that takes us to all the treasures of Christ. They become ours. And of course, Paul has said that already in this letter when he says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. They're ours already. Now, a parent will give a gift to their child or somebody will go a gift to their friends and that's not surprising it's normal but for somebody to give a gift to their enemy well that is surprising and that's what God does he gives us this huge gift which is totally undeserved and totally unexpected and totally unending just going to, this gift, it's not like a Christmas present, which you may be struggling to find the next Christmas. But this gift is just there. Just lasts. It's not a result of human effort. There's nobody mentioned earlier, day 101 in heaven, or age 101 in heaven. There's nobody going to be there who's saying, I got there because of myself. No boasting. It's all of grace. We did nothing to get any feature of salvation. It all flows from the mercy of God. And he is rich in mercy. And he intends to give his riches to his people. So that's salvation. And having known that, what effect does that have upon us? Well, Paul indicates it in verse 10. Where he says there that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk 
in them. Workmanship. I'm sure we know that that word means works of art. It's the kind of word that, we, that would be used to describe a masterpiece. It's, it's the word from which we get the English word poem. Something that's beautifully structured and full of meaning and gives windows into the meaning of reality. And we are his workmanship. And the workmanship, well, in Ephesus, as we know from Acts chapter 19, there, there was a flourishing trade in which the people connected to the temple made little copies of the goddess that was worshipped in the temple. And all these local craftsmen, they produced for people to carry around with them these little charms, or they may have put them on their shelves at home, whatever, and they would say, these are our workmanship. So it would be a, a very common idea in Ephesus. And it would be connected to their false god. But Paul says about, if that's the example that he's using, he's saying they're not the real workmanship. They're just lifeless objects. But he's saying about these Christians that they are God's workmanship. That everything about them is the result of his skill. And that he has made them, he has created them there in Christ Jesus. And of course, the, the word created there brings to mind Genesis chapter 1. And we could ask, what was God's masterpiece in Genesis chapter 1? And the answer to that question is Adam and Eve. There they were made in the image of God. And they have lost it because of their sin. But here's these sinners, and they've been recreated in the image of God. And even now, they're God's masterpiece. It's not just that one day they're going to be God's masterpiece, which is true. But even now, the artist's masterpiece. And in a certain sense, Paul is saying, isn't he, that here we see the real capability of God in making sinners alive, 
spiritually alive. And since they are masterpieces, they are all reflecting his beauty. They reveal his skill, each one of them. I mean, I suppose you could put it this way, every holy thought that goes through our minds is evidence of the hand of God. That he has remade us. Sadly, we may have unholy thoughts at times. But every thing that reveals to us or to anybody else that we are being sanctified is an indication that the finger of God has worked in our lives. And the fact that we are God's masterpiece raises the obvious question, which is, what do we think of each other? When you and I think of another Christian, do their faults come to our mind? It's a serious question. Do we see the great change that God has made in them? Or do we see the little things that have yet to be changed? They're God's masterpieces. There's not one Christian who is not a masterpiece. Of course, there is a certain sense here where Paul is saying that this masterpiece is communal. Because he says there in verse 10, for we, he doesn't say we are his workmanships, as it were, but kind of all of us together, we reveal the skill of the divine artist as he sculpts away at us through his grace and mercy changing us and just turning us into people, as he says there, who are marked by good works. Good works today is a word for acts of charity. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what Paul meant by good works. What Paul means by good works are the opposite of bad works. Bad works are sinful actions. What he means by good works are righteous actions. Everything that they do in life, they're being created for this, made new so that the rest of their earthly journey is spent, engaged in good activities, even as they'll be spending eternity to come engaged in good activities. So, 
Paul says, this good works is to mark the rest of their lives. They are to walk in them. It's to be a constant feature. They've been transformed. They've been changed. They're new creatures. They're not, they're not just different from what they used to be. But they are now indicators of what they're going to be. As they live on this world. Similar to how they will live in the world to come. So this amazing detail that we are God's workmanship. What an amazing thing. But when did God start thinking about this? And Paul tells us that all what was necessary for them to engage in this lifestyle of good works, God prepared all beforehand. That means that this was God's eternal purpose. He wanted to have a people in this world who would have what was needed in order for them to have a life marked by good works. And he planned all the details long before they ever had an existence. What did he plan that we should have? Well, he planned, just roughly, he planned that we would be forgiven. Because until we're forgiven, we can't produce any of these good gifts, good works. He also planned that we would be given the Holy Spirit. Because until we're given the Holy Spirit, we can't do any of these good works. But at the moment that we are converted, who comes to live in us? The Holy Spirit comes to live in us and he comes to renew us and to enable us to live this life. This life that is a foretaste of the world of glory. We need information. What information do we need? And where are we going to find it? Well, God gave us his word, his living word. And everything that God wants us to do is written in his word. And it's down there for us just to follow. And as we implement what the word says and as the Holy Spirit enlightens us, and of course none of us do it perfectly, But the fact that we don't do it perfectly doesn't mean that we cannot do it acceptably. Because God in his mercy accepts what is the product of his own activity. And 
these evidences of our sanctification are this, the consequences of him working in our lives. And therefore he is pleased with them, even although none of them are perfect. That's the kind of life God wants us to live. I mean, that's sanctification. There's no such thing in this life as perfect sanctification. But there is such a thing as living a life that pleases God. And God says here, as Paul says here, that... God has made us new. We are his works of art. We're his living epistles, as he uses elsewhere. Another illustration, read by all men. They see the difference. And they shouldn't, when they say that to see the difference, say, what a wonderful person you are. What they should say is, what a wonderful God you have who has made your life so striking and so beautiful, a work of art. So as we conclude, just a couple of things. What's the challenge to those who are saved? I mean, there's a challenge to those who are not saved. I mean, the challenge to those who are not saved is that they believe in Jesus. And those of us who have believed in Jesus, however long ago it was, we would say to everybody who's not yet a believer that they should become a believer. And when they say that, of course, God is saying that. God is saying to those who are not yet believers that they should come become believers. And he doesn't say to them, have a wee think about it, and, um, and when you've been up your mind, come and be one. Instead, he says to them to become believers now. Just to trust in him. I mean, it may be the case that some of you are persuaded that Jesus is the Savior. But you haven't yet depended on it. And you have to depend on him. You have to commit your life to him. There has to be contact. But having made that contact and become God's masterpieces, what is the challenge that faces us? Well, the challenge that faces us is that we walk in good works, walk in righteous behavior. That all our days, are marked by holiness. That 
more and more we're becoming conformed to Christ's image. And that we show, we work out what God has worked in. And that we show to others that God's amazing grace has worked in our hearts. And we do that on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day. What's the comfort? The comfort is that God has given us everything that we need. Out of his riches and glory, he provides what we need. And there's never going to be a moment in any Christian's experience where he doesn't need to live like a Christian. He's never going to find an, an occasion when it would be all right for him or her not to function as a Christian. All of us fail. We know that. But the failures are never excusable because God will provide what is needed. Paul says that here. He has prepared beforehand what is needed for living the Christian life. So, here we are. If we're Christians, we're on the way to the world of glory where the Heavenly Father is going to spend eternity showing to all of his people the incredible riches of his kindness. And all he asks of us is that in this life we would serve him day after day. Shall we pray?